0: Hello, Freedom Fighters, and welcome to the First and Freedom Podcast, where we discuss current threats to our freedom, how they impact us here at home, and what we can do to stop it. In this week's Freedom Focus, I'll share the warning signs of totalitarianism. I'm your host, Jason Fibbs, and we're taking freedom back. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation away from extinction. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. Hello, folks. Thank you for joining the show today. I wanted to start off with a tribute to uh, George Washington, our first president, in honor of President's Day this past Monday. And so to do so, I just wanted to pull a few excerpts from one of his best speeches, which was his farewell address in 1796 um, and this was released to the public via an open letter and it's it's quite lengthy so I'm certainly not going to read all of it but I just want to share a few snippets um, in honor of the legacy that he helped lead this country. Um, A little bit of ways into the speech he says this government the offspring of our own choice in uninfluenced and unawed adopted upon full investigation and mature deliberation Completely free in its principles, in the distribution of its powers, uniting security with energy, and containing within itself a provision for its own amendment, has a just claim to your confidence and your support. Respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures are duties enjoined by the fundamental uh, maxims of true liberty. The basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the Constitution, which at any time exists, till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. And so essentially what he's saying here is that it's important for us to respect the founding document of our country and the... A document by which we anchor to which is the constitution itself this document that we have allowed for amendment um, and it can be changed um, however this is the the fundamental premise of self-government is that the people coming to an agreement to establish a government on its behalf and that government only lasts as long as the people agree for it to and so that that Constitution is like a contract that we've made with ourselves and with each other on how we're going to govern ourselves. But that document only means as much as people's willingness to adhere to it. And so he speaks to that by saying, but the Constitution, which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. So unless it's changed, we have an obligation to follow it. And then he says it concludes with the very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish a government presupposes the duty of every individual to then obey that established government. So if we're going to create a government, we then have to follow by it if we want it to survive. Um, Next, a little bit further ways down, he has another excerpt here. It says, towards the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite not only that you steadily discountenance irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles, however specious the pretext. And so essentially what he's saying here is you need to be on guard to preserve this government. And you have to do so by not only opposing those authorities that are trying to basically thwart it or destroy it. And so you might think of that from an outside perspective, but also you must resist. He says with care, the spirit of innovation he calls upon its principles, however, specious or small, the pretext, the idea that people will try to change, add, edit, manipulate the principles as they exist in a way to, in essence, overthrow that system. And he says, one method of assault may be to affect in the forms of the Constitution alterations which will impair the energy of the system and thus to undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. And that's what we see today in our country. Exactly what he warned about was these alterations which impair the system to work properly, the systems of checks and balances that we have. We see our state Supreme Court overstepping its bounds into the legislature, which is now causing confusion and overthrowing the established authority as it was intended to be. We see the governor over the past two years who has abused emergency powers and essentially operated as a dictator, overthrowing the ability of the legislature and the will of the people, causing confusion, alterations in the energy of the system. So we see this today, and this is exactly what George Washington warned us about, He goes on to say, um, It is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with its administration—that's politicians—to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. So, as these different branches of the government are established— Whatever role a person is in, whether it be in the judicial, the legislative, or the executive branch, it's important that they confine themselves to those respective spheres and so that they do not encroach upon another. He says the spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one and thus to create, whatever the form of government, a real despotism or sort of like a a dictatorship of type. So when we allow the encroachment and the overlap of these systems, when one is allowed to spill over into another, then essentially what is happening is power is being consolidated. And as power becomes becomes consolidated, you no longer have the checks on that power, which then allows people to rule without limit. He says a just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it which predominates in the human heart is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. In other words, we know that this is, this is the, the bend of the human heart is to grab for more power. It is, it is natural in us, in our sinful nature, to abuse the power that we've been given. And so therefore, he goes on to say the necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it into different depositaries and cons- constituting each the guardian of the public weal against invasions by the others has been evinced by experiments ancient and modern, some of them in our country and u- under our own eyes. To preserve them must be as necessary as to institute them. So he says, essentially, we've seen this in history, this division of political power and the checks and power and how they need to be there in order to prevent this despotism from happening. But also, it's just as important to preserve them as it was to institute them in the first place. And he's essentially saying, we know this to be true. We have seen this even under our own eyes and probably referring to the, the states or the colonies at that time. Um, last thing I'll share here, he says, um, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Again, religion and morality are indispensable supports, as in we cannot do without them. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason, and experience, both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. In other words, there must be a foundation, a higher power to which we appeal beyond ourselves. Morality without a religious foundation is just your opinion the, the the what we talk about when we talk about morality and we say things like well everybody knows murder is wrong well not everybody does know murder is wrong there are plenty of serial killers out there that are perfectly fine with murder and 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 feel like it, there's no problem with it so then why is murder wrong why is stealing wrong why is lying wrong all of the things that we try to establish From a morality perspective, where do those things come from? Who gets to say what is right and what is wrong without appealing to a higher power that is beyond us an established true north that does not move without doing so. We're just debating our own opinions. And so he says, you cannot have a morality. There cannot be a national morality that will prevail in exclusion of religious principle. And so therefore, he says, the politician equally with the pious man, with the righteous man ought to respect and to cherish them both religion and morality. And of course, when he talked about religion, he was referring to the Judeo-Christian values upon which this country was founded. And so these are just a few excerpts from this uh, great speech uh, that one of our founding fathers, George Washington, gave to us. And there's a lot of good information in here with respect to um, what he felt like was instrumental in founding the country. And after having served two terms, the warnings um, that he gave to us um, in order to preserve it. So tribute to George Washington um, and all of his great accomplishments and the legacy that he left on our nation. And now let's get to news you need to know. So, oh boy, um, I've got a, I've got several stories here today, and I think you're going to notice a theme here, um, which is unfortunate but but true. The first one comes from the Carolina Journal. It says three judge panel upholds new North Carolina legislative maps, redraws congressional map. Now, this story was just released today, so I'm recording on February the 23rd. This story was just out, which is essentially this is the map case that we've been following. Um, And the latest update was, you know, the General Assembly had to go back and redraw the maps, which we said was basically an unconstitutional decision by the state Supreme Court uh, because there was nothing. They couldn't identify anything that was wrong with the maps in the first place. But other than their own opinion, nothing that they could um, decide via the uh, state constitution and the rules that are that govern map drawing. But anyway, that aside, so they go back to draw the maps and unfortunately, just as a little bit of context prior to this decision, um, you know, I mentioned to you that the, I thought the Republican legislature should do nothing. I thought they should just leave the maps as they were and basically dare the court to do something with it. Well, they didn't, they went back and they redrew them and quite frankly, they, they, redrew them into Democrat favor. Um, and I mean, this is essentially Democrats getting at least more of what they want, probably not all of what they want, but certainly more. Um, I think Republicans went and, and not I think, but it's, it's a fact that they went farther than they had to go in order to meet um, the guidelines and sort of constitutional, I guess, uh, parameters that were being provided by the court. Um, so I don't understand that. Um, why, you know, I guess just, just to pause for a second on this, do you think that's what Democrats would do? If the Democrats were in charge of the general assembly and we had a Republican governor and Republican majority on the state Supreme court, and they were asked to redraw the maps, do you think they would go farther than they had to? Do you think they would just roll over and redraw the maps again? I don't. I think they've shown that they will use every tool at their disposal to get what they want. And yet We continue to play a different game, and that's why Republicans always lose. But in this context, it says, um, and not yet into the article, but just as background, in total, the number of competitive seats grew after after they redrew the maps. The number of competitive seats grew from 9 to 15 in the House map, so this is for the state House map, and from 6 to 7 in the Senate's new map. Now, the Senate map was the one I would say they probably gave the least – um, that one was probably more hotly contested. They they kind of basically just budged a hair. Um, so kudos to them for that. Um, the House, however, you know, you can, you know, 9 to 15, they they went a long way in, in giving ground. And then when they went to go draw the U.S. congressional House seats, um, that went from what was estimated to be a 10-4 split. So 10 Republican seats to four Democrat seats to a 6-4-4 split, which is, basically saying six safe Republican seats four safe democrat seats and four toss-ups and they said that two would have been enough basically to to sort of align with the expectations that were laid out and remember even the the map analysis that was provided said that uh, you know 72 percent i think of the of the maps that were drawn out of a thousand or whatever it was or the thousands of maps said that the 72 percent of the time a 9-5 split is what came up and they drew a 10-4 split to start with. And now they've drawn a 6-4-4 split. So they give a lot of ground on this. And yet, even after all of that, while the, um, the maps had to be reviewed, so they, they redrew the, the state House and state Senate maps along with the congressional maps. And so that had to be reviewed by a three-judge panel that was bipartisan. And the panel essentially approved the state legislative maps but they rejected the congressional map. So after, so you know, this this is what's so funny. This is what Republicans don't get. They went along and did what they were asked to do. When they, in my opinion, they shouldn't have done that, but they did. They went along and they did what they were asked to do, and they still got burned. I mean, the court still said no. So the the court had a had a, had brought in three quote unquote special masters who were supposed to analyze these maps to see whether or not they complied with, as we had stated before in a prior uh, podcast, no definitive line. You know, that there was no specific bar that was established for these guys to meet. It was essentially just we need to see that the maps are fair by party affiliation and essentially the court will decide when it's fair or not. Well, they approved the State House and State Senate map, and they rejected the congressional map, which means that the court then leveraged those special masters and have inserted their own map. So this is exactly what I was telling you before, that if the court were to insert their own map, that is unconstitutional and they should be impeached. Only the legislature has the authority to draw maps, period. No other body has been given that power. And it's not like the legislature was not doing their job. They did exactly what they were asked to do. And they even went farther than where they had to go. And the court still inserted maps anyway. And the Republicans shouldn't stand for it. We, the people, should not stand for it. This is is a blatant disregard for our Constitution, as I just got done talking about with uh, Washington's farewell address that when that constitution is established, we have an obligation as a people to follow that constitution until it has been changed by the people. Which, by the way, they won't even let us do that, as we're seeing with the voter ID and, and with these uh, with the income tax case. And we'll see how those turn out. But this is essentially what is being fought in court as well. So anyway, so looking through um, the article here, I mean, there's a lot of different sort of details about um, I guess the whys and the wherefores and those types of things, but I think the bottom line comes down to um, here's sort of the special masters' findings in a memo. This is at least a quote from their from their findings. It says there is disagreement among the parties as to whether the proposed remedial congressional plan meets the presumptively constitutional threshold thresholds suggested by the Supreme Court. So, in other words, these special masters were not in aligned. They they, do, they were not in agreement. The special masters, considering the reports of their advisors and the experts of the parties while giving appropriate deference to the General Assembly, are of the opinion that the proposed remedial congressional plan fails to meet the threshold of constitutionality and recommend that the trial court reject the proposed remedial congressional plan as being unconstitutional. So again, that means, you know, essentially they've they've given their opinion. That means that uh, another map will be inserted um, and the, uh, let's see, what is it, the General Assembly, or I guess any parties, have until 5 p.m. So it says the uh, the, the panel's 23-page order reached the public shortly after a noon deadline set by the North Carolina Supreme Court. Appeals from the three judge panel's ruling must be made to the state Supreme Court by 5 p.m. today. So that's February 23rd. Um, candidate filing for all North Carolina elections, including legislative and congressional races linked to the disputed maps is set to resume Thursday morning. So, again, this was this was the whole reason for the rush was that the um, was that candidate filing was going to resume again tomorrow, February 24th. And so the new maps had to be established by then. And so this, of course, you know, they had basically two weeks to do it. Now they had to you know turn them in. I think they turned them in uh, over the weekend. And then now the special masters have re- reviewed the maps. They've accepted two, rejected one, and basically now there's no time to do anything else. So unless the general assembly or some other party disputes the maps, then you know this is the way it's going to stand. Is the, the new inserted map will be the congressional map, and then the state uh, house and senate maps that were passed will be um, will be leveraged as well. The last thing I just thought was just amazing. Um, so even though, as I mentioned before, Democrats got gained so much ground through this process, whereas had it just been left alone for the legislature to do as they're supposed to be done, things would have been different. But even though they gained through this, they still aren't happy. And so here uh, towards the end of the article, it says Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, blasted the court's decision, quote, Today's decision allows a blatantly unfair and unconstitutional state Senate map that may have been the worst of the bunch, end quote, Cooper said in a prepared statement. Quote, that is bad for North Carolina because it strips voters of their voice in our democracy, end quote. I mean, this guy is a joke. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, he is just an evil partisan hack who he's just out for power. I mean, that's all that's that's all this is about. This is just about power. This isn't about voting rights. This isn't about the will of the people. The will of the people was a Republican legislature that drew the maps. The will of the people was a state constitution that said the legislature draws the maps. It was the will of the people that said party affiliation is not to be counted as part of the map drawing process. And yet we're arguing or Democrats are still arguing over the violation of the will of the people. You know, I don't know what Republicans will do from here. Um, you know, I'm sure they'll uh, pretend, I guess, like they're going to do something, but then won't, um, as is typical of the case. So, you know, I don't expect anything out of it. Democrats are doing exactly what I expect them to do. You know, they're going to they're going to kick and scream for every you know drop of power they can get. Um, and Republicans apparently will give it to them, I guess. I don't know. So that's a shame. All right, so let's move on to the next story here. The next one comes from Education First Alliance, um, North Carolina. Uh, This is the group um, that has been fighting CRT in the state and really, I think, across the country. They've been educating folks. Sloan Rackmuth and the group over there does a great job and and really uncovers a lot of good information that, that school parents need to know. Well, they went and did a deep dive on this whole mask legislation. So... The title of this article that they wrote was called Breaking Down the School Mask Mandate Legislation. So last week, uh, Speaker Moore, Speaker of the House Republican, came out and said, you know, essentially now that sort of the walls are coming down and that the Department of Health is uh, basically backing down on the quarantine and all of that, now they're saying, hey, we need to get rid of the mask as well. And of course, if you recall, like, I think it was two weeks ago, the, uh, Department of Health would not go that far than the governor like they would they were like, well, we, we still think we really need to keep the mask. And then basically a, a week later, um, once Speaker Moore comes out and says, hey, we're going to go pass this free the smiles bill that will then essentially require school systems to allow parents to have optional masks, basically let the parents decide whether or not their kids will wear a mask or not, then Governor Cooper comes out basically right after them and says, "Oh, you know, you know what? You guys can stop wearing masks now because, you know, the science has changed and all of that." So, it's all a show. Hopefully you saw from one week to the next, the State Health Department came out and, and you know, like I say, just 2 weeks ago they said masks were needed, made no mention of, "Oh, we're super close and maybe next week, you know, we can take masks off," you know, and, and and all the numbers are no. They didn't say any of that. They just changed their mind over the next week because it's all politics and that's all it's been for two years. So we've known from the very beginning masks don't work, and yet they have abused children across the state for the entire time. Um, and now, like I say, the, the, the House stepped up and said, OK, well, let's let's go, you know, work with the Senate and pass this Free the Smiles bill. So it says Republicans claim their new legislation restores parental rights. Text of the law suggests that lawmakers may have also codified mask wearing as the norm for pre-K through 12th grade students. The state legislature passed a bill this week that allows North Carolina parents to opt their children out of mask wearing mandates set by their local education boards. Which is good, right? The bill, Senate Bill 173, requires schools to honor parents' requests for any reason and prohibit school employees from taking retaliatory action against students opting out of wearing masks on school property. While affirming a parent's right to unmask their children, the bill also makes mask wearing a default position in public schools. From the bill, quote, A public school unit shall adopt a process for parents to provide annual notification of the election. And so, uh, Ms. Rackmuth goes on to say the provision could give school districts such as Wake, Orange, and Mecklenburg, who cling to the mandates, the legal foundation to continue masking children in perpetuity. And so what what she's essentially saying here is that while, yes, it is good that they came out and said, hey, masking needs to be optional, right? It should be up to the parents. That's good. But the language that they used essentially talked about a process that should be adopted for them to opt out. And it even says an annual notification. So what that implies is that a school board could essentially say, well, we should require masks forever because of the flu. And we have, you know, because of this new law, we have to give parents the opportunity to opt out. So therefore, the default position is that you have to wear mask unless you go through this process that has yet to be created and provide an annual notification. So every year, you will have to elect potentially whether or not you want to wear a mask or not. Why in the world did they do that? Why wouldn't you just make the default position? People don't have to wear masks if they don't want to, period. They don't need to turn in an election. They don't need to do anything. They just need to not wear a mask. I mean, why why do we have to make this so hard? And so I don't have any I don't have any idea why this language was put in there. I don't know if this language was to help get Democrats on board and create a super majority um, or a veto proof majority. I don't know if that's why they did it. But even in the efforts to do something good we still are doing the wrong things. I mean, we're codifying this stuff into law. I just don't understand. I just don't understand why we have to make this so hard. And this is why, if you're a Republican leader out there, this is why people like me get frustrated with you. It's just stuff like this. What, what are we doing? Why not just say, mask or optional, no retaliation, period? Why do we have to write in all this language and and create some kind of process or annual notification or whatever? This that's ridiculous. That's going. That's that's doing too much. You just got to let the local bodies handle it. Like I say, I, I think their hearts in the right place, but number one, it's a year and a half too late. This should have been done a long time ago. We knew mass didn't work from April May of 2020 not 2021, 2020, at, at the latest this summer, we knew for a fact that mask did not work. And in fact, Anthony Fauci and all the powers that be, they knew before that because that was their first direction that they gave people was, no, people don't need mask. And so it wasn't until the politics and the power changed is when they started asking for this. So we've known forever, why not pass it then? Why now? I mean, so now... The, the the democrat machine is unwinding on this thing you can see it across the country we all see it and now everybody's going to run out and say oh ooh, look we, we passed a free the smiles bill well why didn't you do this a long time ago i mean again this is where the frustration comes from I, it's not that we think republicans are trying to continue covid stand policies i'm not i'm not saying that I'm not saying that they agree with masks. I'm not saying that they agree with all the things that have happened. I'm not saying that they agree with, you know, vaccines for children. I'm not saying all that. What I'm saying is the steps that they have taken, or in fact, more often than not, the steps they have not taken is what has helped this continue. It's what allowed this this power grab and overreach to go on for as long as it has. We have empowered the opposition and the people who have been instituting these powers by not with by not applying full scale resistance with all measures all the time. And so that's what you end up with. So you know like I say, I mean better late than never I guess, but you know at this point everybody's got the message you know the, the school boards are already you know doing it themselves. I mean uh, at last count, uh, I think as of today, there are 89 school districts. Yeah, 89 of it 115 school districts who have mask optional. So, you know, Governor Cooper hadn't even had a chance to veto this law yet. It's all pretty much a fait accompli at this point. So this, this legislation is pretty much a show vote. I mean, maybe you could say it kind of pushes it over the hump, but for all intents and purposes, it was already done. Um, the next story I want to share is just an update on uh, some of the COVID funding that's been going on locally. Um, so at least, and again, I, and I think this is important because it not just relates to my county, Stanley County, but it relates to all the counties because all the counties were getting this money. So I would encourage you to um, to look into it with your respective county managers, et cetera, to, to find out sort of how your local leaders have done, because I call this out because it's our county commissioners that have had to approve these budget amendments. So as the as the federal dollars have come down to the state, which has then come down to the counties, in order to power all of these COVID tyrannical policies, that money has had to be approved in order to be received by the counties. So in the case of the health department, the health department, gets money allocated to them, which has come down ultimately from the federal government through the state to them, they then have to make a budget amendment or request a budget amendment to the county that the county commissioners then have to approve. And if they don't approve it, guess what? They don't get the money. And yet, this is the fuel for the fire here. These policies cannot run without money to fund them, and yet, you know, all... County commissioners across the the state, as far as I know, probably have just been approving all these things, or at least certainly mine have. So we have all Republican county commissioners, and they have approved since the pandemic began in March of 2020, they have approved, let's see, I'm looking at five, nine. They have approved nine different funding amendments for the health department for COVID funding. And all nine of them were passed through the consent agenda, which means there was no discussion. There was no conversation about these things. They just went through rubber stamp and just let's just continue feeding the fire. So while the county commissioners may not have been able to tell the health department which policies to implement or to do things differently, they could have been undermining their ability to do these things. And let me give you some examples of what this money is funded. Um, they funded prevention, uh, to says prevent, pre- prepare for, and respond to COVID. So that's sort of generic, um, contact tracers. Um, i sure everybody's, you know, tired of contact tracing in the schools and things of that nature. Well, they funded that, um, they have funded supplies and surveillance. They have funded, uh, case management, public relations, um, testing site management, um, mitigation with other community partners, um, increasing vaccination capacity has been a big one. Um, They've hired a school nurse liaison in order to, you know, make that connection with the schools, which, again, obviously goes back to the quarantining and the contact tracing that we've all been big fans of. Um, More vaccination capacity and um, paying for more personnel, school nurses, support personnel, et cetera. So how much has it been exactly? Well, I don't know about your county, but in my county, the total comes to one point four eight million dollars. Now. You know, I mean, $1.48 million is a lot of money to all of us, I'm sure. Um, is it a lot of money in the in the great scheme of things from a government perspective? I don't know, but I know this much. It was enough money to keep all this stuff going for the last two years. I know that much. So, you know, these are the things you need to be aware of when it comes to election time. There's a lot of Republicans running for primary uh, spots, you know, for re-election, And they need to be held accountable for this. If you don't like what has happened over the past two years with this pandemic, well, then you got to start assigning blame where it goes. And the funding is part of that. No doubt about it. Um, The last story I'm going to share with you here is uh, from The Washington Times. This story is called GOP absences prevent Senate from defunding Biden's vaccine mandate. Um, I don't normally share sort of national things like this, but it's important because it relates to our United States senators here at home in North Carolina. So I'm just going to read this little short or it's very short, um, but I just want to get you uh, kind of catch you up on what the issue is. It's says Senate Democrats on Thursday. This was last Thursday, averted an attempt to defund president Biden's vaccine mandate for public health care workers due to the absence of four Republican lawmakers. So think about that for a second. Um, the vaccine mandates, as you know, they the OSHA mandate was um, sort of rendered moot, unconstitutional. Um, the uh, or there was a stay on it, and they took it away. However, the 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 mandate for um, healthcare facilities that take Medicaid funding was upheld. So all of our healthcare workers, which there's approximately five hundred thousand healthcare workers in the state of North Carolina, the vast majority of them are still dealing with a vaccine mandate, even right now. So the to the credit of some of the conservative Republicans within the House and the Senate, the U.S. House and U.S. Senate, that is, is—they there was a continuing resolution up for the budget. So, in other words, we were going to run out of money from a budget perspective for the country. And, of course, this really is only – it's not actually all the money in the budget. It's only like 21 percent of the budget because so much of it is entitlements that will continue no matter what. But for that 21 percent that was controlled by this budget amendment, they had an opportunity to essentially force an amendment to that budget vote that would require or that would defund the money that was funding the vaccine mandates. So that's what they were going after here was they wanted to cut the funding for the vaccine mandate. So essentially they would gut it just like I was talking about from the county commissioner level before. However, they couldn't or they failed due to the absence of who? Four Republican lawmakers. In a 46 to 47 vote, the Senate blocked an amendment prohibiting tax dollars from going to enforcement of Mr. Biden's vaccine mandate. The amendment was attached to a larger measure to keep the government funded until March 11th. Senators uh, GOP Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Ted Cruz of Texas introduced the amendment to the spending bill earlier this week. The duo forced Senate Democrats to hold a vote on it by threatening to withhold speedy consideration of the larger measure, which risked a government shutdown Friday if the stopgap spending bill isn't passed in time. Enough is enough, Mr. Cruz said when urging support for the amendment. It's time to stop the petty tyrants imposing COVID-19 vaccine mandates on families across the country. Since Congress has to pass a funding measure by Friday, Mr. Schumer acquiesced to a simple majority vote on the amendment. With at least three Democrats out this week, the amendment looks set to pass. That proved impossible, however, when four GOP senators were absent for the vote. The Republican senators Richard Burr of North Carolina, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, James Inhofe of Oklahoma, and Mitt Romney of Utah are traveling to attend the Munich Security Conference in Germany. Another amendment offered by Mr. Cruz to defund the White House's vaccine mandate for schools also went down to the defeat. So number one, Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina was not there to vote. So great job. Of course, he's retiring, so he doesn't care. And then after they had the vote, after they had the amendment vote and the amendment vote failed, then they had to turn around and vote on the continuing resolution for the budget. So now if you were a quote unquote conservative Republican who didn't want to fund vaccine mandates, what might you have done with the, con- with the continuing resolution vote? Well, if you were a dutiful conservative, you would have voted against it. And if you thought that our other Republican senator who was there to vote, Tom Tillis, voted against it, you would be wrong. He voted for it. So after he voted for the amendment to block the vaccine mandate, so now that gives him the ability to say, oh, I voted for the amendment to block the vaccine mandate, he then turned around and voted for vaccine mandates. And I bring this up because we have a new Senate primary this year. The Richard Burr, as I mentioned, is retiring. And so Senator Burr is retiring. We will then have a new senator. So the race is open. And you've heard the front runners are uh, Ted Budd and Pat McCrory uh, right now. And, and, and I want to go into more depth in that in a future podcast before the, the primary comes up. But these are the types of things you need to keep in mind. We have had such garbage United States senators for I don't know how long. They all claim to be conservatives, and they all get to Washington, and none of them are conservatives. They're not even half conservatives. I mean, they are just outright establishment, go along to get along, do whatever they're told, uh, you know, legislators. And we, we're not going to stop the madness this way. We are in a steady decline in this nation. We are losing our freedom fast, and we are not going to get it back by people like that. It's just not going to happen. And so you're going to have to think outside the box. You're going to have to do some homework and find out which of these Senate candidates are the real deal and which one of these folks are just more establishment garbage. And nine times out of 10, my, my, my sort of assumption is that whoever the front runners are, are more than likely the garbage. Because that's that's where all the money's going, right? All you got to do is follow the money. Where all the money's going, all the, enti- uh, the, uh, the lobbyists and the, the political action organizations and all that, wherever they're supporting, those are likely the people who are trying to maintain the status quo. Those are usually not the people that are trying to go against it. As you can see, a lot of disappointment on the Republican front. I mean, who needs enemies when you got Republicans like this? All right, so let's get to today's Freedom Focus. So for today's Freedom Focus, I wanted to um, share some more of the book, Live Not By Lies with You, a manual for Christian dissidents. So as I mentioned before, this is a book that I'm reading. I hope you'll read it along with me. Um, But one of the things that I wanted to call out here, which I just thought was so helpful, um, there's a section here called How to See Totalitarianism Coming. And um, this is in, let's see, it's chapter two. Um, and the author makes reference to um, a lady named Hannah Arendt. And it says In 1951, after the end of World War II, Arendt published a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism, the political philosopher's classic study of what had happened in Germany and the Soviet Union in an attempt to understand how such radical ideologies had seized the minds of men. So I just wanted to go over at a high level the different um, sort of components or warning signs that she noticed. And I think you'll very easily see some of the parallels to today. So the first one she mentions was um, is loneliness and social atomization. She says, what prepares men for totalitarian domination in the non-totalitarian world is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions like old age, has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our country. And boy, can we identify with that. I mean, this is the age of social media. You know, we have never been more connected and yet more further apart or more lonely. Um, this, this is essentially our state um, today. He, uh, the author goes on to say, um, In Bowling Alone, Putnam, another author, documented the unraveling of civic bonds since the 1950s. He says, Americans attend fewer club meetings, have fewer dinner parties, eat dinner together as a family less, and are much less connected to their neighbors. They are disconnected from political parties and more skeptical of institutions. They spend much more time alone watching television or cocooning on the Internet. The result is that ordinary people feel more anxious, isolated, and vulnerable. And it's that vulnerability, that desperation for connectedness, for real connectedness and community, which is what we were made for by God To be in community it's that desire and vulnerability that makes us susceptible to a new ideology. The next one she calls out is losing faith in hierarchies and institutions. And here she points out that um, she says a loss of faith in democratic politics is a sign of a deeper and broader instability. Um, He says, are we today really so different talking about the time of the past? He says, according to Gallup. Americans' confidence in their institutions—political, media, religious, legal, medical, corporate—is at historic lows across the board. Only the military, the police, and small businesses retain the strong confidence of over fifty percent. And that was, you know, back when the book was published in 2020, which means the data was probably before that. So that's probably not the case anymore either. Um, so you know, you can see that this—you um, know—we are losing our uh, our belief in all of the institutions in fact if you recall if you go back and listen to the episode I did the book review by Scott Atlas um in his time in the white house that was something that he talked about as well is that one of the most critical things we need to do is restore faith in our key institutions um the author goes on to say this is the fulfillment of modern liberalism's goal to free the individual from any unchosen obligations. So essentially, you know, the idea is is that as you become more disconnected and believe less in those critical institutions, the more, again, the more susceptible you are to new institutions coming in and taking over and, and bringing the, the order and the certainty that you crave. The next item that she calls out is the desire to transgress and destroy. Um, she talks about how she says, um, Or the author says her point was that these authors did not avail themselves of respectable intellectual theories to justify their transgressiveness. They immersed themselves in what is basest in human nature and regarded doing so as acts of liberation. Um, She says the members of the elite did not object at all to paying a price. The destruction of civilization for the fun of seeing how those who had been excluded unjustly in the past forced their way into it. Regarding transgressive sexuality as a social good was not an innovation of the sexual revolution. Like the contemporary West, late Imperial Russia was also awash in what historian James Billington called a preoccupation with sex that is quite without parallel in earlier Russian culture. Among the social and intellectual elites, sexual adventurism, celebrations of perversion, and all manner of sensuality was common. And not just among the elites, the laboring masses alone in the city with no church to bind their consciences with guilt or village gossips to shame them found comfort in sex. And so, of course, we see this in our own culture, this sort of dehumanization and sort of base mentality of everyone just sort of going to the most, you know, Root heart of sin, um, and basically just giving themselves over to that. Um, so anyway, so that 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 desire to transgress and destroy just for the fun of it, just because it feels good, and and, and we hear that all the time in our culture to do what feels good. Um, the next one she says is propaganda and the willingness to believe useful lies. Um, she says. It is not hard for a totalitarian regime to keep people ignorant. Once you relinquish your freedom for the sake of understood necessity, for party discipline, for conformity with the regime, for the greatness and glory of the fatherland, or for any of the substitutes that are so convincingly offered, you cede your claim to the truth. Slowly, by, uh, drop by drop, your life begins to ooze away just as surely as if you had slashed your wrist. You have voluntarily condemned yourself to helplessness. And so, again, talking about this taking over of what is true, um, we see this probably most prominently in our media. Um, The author references the 1619 Project, which is essentially an effort to rewrite history. Um, The author goes on to say, propaganda helps change the world by creating a false impression of the way the world is. Arendt writes, quote, the force possessed by totalitarian propaganda before the movement has the power to drop the iron curtains to prevent anyone's disturbing By the slightest reality, the gruesome quiet of an entirely imaginary world lies in its ability to shut the masses off from the real world. And in 2019, Zach Goldberg, a political science PhD student at Georgia Tech, did a deep dive on LexisNexis, the world's largest database of publicly available documents, including media reports. He found that over a nine-year period, the rate of news stories using progressive jargon associated with left-wing critical theory and social justice concepts shot into the stratosphere. So what does all this mean, he says? that the mainstream media is framing the general public's understanding of news and events according to what was until very recently a radical ideology confined to left-wing intellectual elites. And so the bottom line is, is if you tell a lie long enough, it becomes the truth. And we see that. We see it everywhere. We see it with the, uh, the censorship on social media. We see it with the censorship on the internet in general. Um, where people are being deplatformed and all types of things. And then, of course, the gross sort of just, you know, left-wing, one-sided, partisan view of the um, established media, the mainstream media, uh, being basically a mouthpiece for the left. Um, all of this is what is happening. And you see, you probably hear it from your friends and neighbors, people that no longer understand what truth is anymore. A couple more here she calls out. Um, one is a mania for ideology. Um She says, uh, one of contemporary progressivism's commonly used phrases, the personal is political, captures the totalitarian spirit, which seeks to infuse all aspects of life with political consciousness. Indeed, the left pushes its ideology ever deeper into the personal realm, leaving fewer and fewer areas of daily life uncontested. This, warned Arendt, is a sign that a society is ripening for totalitarianism because that is what totalitarianism essentially is—the politicization of everything. And so, again, just you see the ideology; everything is becoming political. Nothing can escape politics. Um, he even he kind of gives this example, um, talking about how even chess became political in the Soviet Union. "Quote: We must finish once and for all with the neutrality of chess," he said quote, we must condemn once and for all the formula chess for the sake of chess, like the formula art for art's sake. We must organize shock brigades of chess players and begin immediate realization of a five-year plan for chess. <laughs> so that was a uh, early Stalin-era area uh, Soviet commissar or political officer. Um, the last one here, the last sort of warning sign that she gives is, a society that values loyalty more than expertise. And so this is essentially around what we see where people don't care what you know, they only care what you believe, and it doesn't matter if what you believe is not true as long as it follows the prevailing ideology of the day. The author writes, Loyalty to the group or the tribe is at the core of leftist identity politics. Loyalty to an ideology over expertise is no less disturbing than loyalty to a personality. This is at the root of cancel culture in which transgressors, however minor their infractions, Find themselves cast into outer darkness, and so you know we've seen the cancel culture, um, you know, in full, you know, full steam, you know, across the board with all types of folks, whether they be politicians or uh, celebrities or what have you, and so we see this everywhere. Um, and, and as I mentioned in one of the prior episodes when I was talking about the UNC system, we have now that the, they're they're starting to put documents in front of faculty to basically say, you need to sign this diversity equity inclusion statement that says you agree with these things, or else we're not going to, you know, we can't let you join our faculty. So you know, now you're having to conform to the ideologies in order to get a job. And this is where things start. And then it continues to grow before the time comes when everyone will have to submit just to, to this ideology in order to eat, you know, uh, to function in the economy. Um, you know, we see it with the vaccine mandates. You know, it's essentially what the vaccine mandates are saying. We know it doesn't stop the spread of COVID, um, right? That's, that's not the reason at all why they're doing it. But it is more of a bow the knee to this ideology that, well, the state says that this is good for you and you need to accept that. So those are some of the warning, or the warning signs that were laid out by Hannah Arendt. Um, who looked at sort of former Soviet um, bloc nations years and years ago and did an analysis of what she saw after such a horrible tragedy um, and what communism wrought on those countries and yet I think you can very easily see those same warning signs today. What does it mean for us? Who knows? You know, it, it's going to depend on you and me and how much we're willing to fight it. Um, but uh, if we don't know, you know, if, if we don't know what's coming or if we don't know you know, what the warning signs are, then then we can't do anything about it. So um we need to be educated on that. And that's today's freedom focus. So uh now let's get to some action. So real brief um today, just a couple things. One is I just want to encourage you not to lower your standards. Um you deserve better. You know you're gonna hear through this election cycle that um, you know, oh look at all the good things that these Republicans have done, and you know, oh I feel, I'm the same way. I feel the same way you do, and we're not that far apart, and you know, all those kinds of things. And the fact is, that's just not true. If we were on the same page, we wouldn't have had COVID tyranny for the last two years. Um, so for those of us who are freedom loving people who know what tyranny looks like and who understand what freedom looks like, knows that we see something different. And I want to encourage you because the vast majority of people out there really on both sides, Republican and Democrat, are going to tell you that everything's okay and just go back to sleep, that, you know, we'll take care of it for you. And this is just the way politics works. And, you know, if we can just get a few more Republicans here or a few more people there, then everything will be okay. And the fact is that that's just not true. It's not about having people with a certain letter beside their name. It's about having the right people. It's about having people who understand The foundations of liberty and see the tyranny that is coming and growing and metastasizing through our society. And so I just want to encourage you not to lower your standards. You don't have to, and you deserve better. There's a handful of more districts out there, looks like about uh, 26 or so, that still need to get to mask optional. So certainly, if you're in one of those areas, keep fighting. You're fighting the good fight. Um, Do, you know, finish the race, you know, go, go run right to the, to the line. Um, we've got to get, I, I won't be satisfied until all 115 uh, are mask optional because uh, that's the right thing to do is what these children deserve. Um, and, and they better never come back after that. You know, that, that's what we got. That's the next thing is to ensure they never come back. Um, finally, candidate filing opens Thursdays, February 24th. Um, that's tomorrow, at least for me. Uh, the day that I'm recording this, so there's still time to find good candidates. You know, go go out there and find some conservatives to run. I think candidate filing will be open for maybe a week, uh, so, so it'll be up until sometime next week. Um, so by all means, um, you know, if if you're looking at a race and there's not a conservative candidate in it, you know, try to find somebody to run. Um, you know, let's do the best we can to get as many good candidates out there. Um, you know, my thanks to all the candidates who have filed for office who are running. I know it's a big time commitment. I know it's a lot of work. Um, but you're doing a good thing and, um, and know that people like myself and others listening to the uh, first and freedom podcast are behind you. So, so keep fighting the good fight. Well, that's all for today, folks. Um, and this week, thank you so much for listening to the first and freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and give it a five-star review that will help ensure other freedom, loving North Carolinians find it as well. The show can be found on Apple, Spotify, Google, or anywhere you go for podcasts. Finally, if you have additional feedback or show topic ideas, you can email me directly at firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. That's firstinfreedom1776 at gmail.com. And until next week, be first in freedom.